This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my blanket covered equity buddy, Ren. <laughs> How's it going, bro? I'm good, Bryce. I'm a little bit nervous about how this episode's going to go because we're uh, we're doing it in a very makeshift way. We've There's got a say. lot of moving parts to this episode. <laughs> Literally, we... <laughs> <laughs> we're not in the studio. COVID's got us good for this one, but back under the blankets. And for this episode, you've got a few bits and pieces to move around. So apologies if there are some audio issues, but we are doing the best we can given the circumstances. <laughs> And biggest apologies of all to our editor, Darren, who's going to have to piece this one together. But <laughs> look, we uh, Warren Buffett spoke and we have to listen. And we wanted to share some of the highlights of the 2020 Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting with everyone. And we figured timeliness was important with this episode. So rather than waiting to be able to get back into the studio and do it properly with all the right equipment, we're <laughs> doing it in a little bit of a makeshift way. But it's actually hilarious. This is the first podcast that we've recorded over Zoom and I'm looking at Ren as he sits underneath his blanket and it is quite <laughs> a sight. So we might put some clips up if we can. But anyway, let's move on, Ren, to your point. Uh, we're going to be reviewing some of the key messages that Buffett spoke about and delivered at the Berkshire Hathaway annual general meeting. For those of you who are unaware of, of just how big this usually is, it's an event that thousands upon thousands of people, investors around the world, hang out for, spend a lot of money buying tickets and flying across to America where he fills out a football stadium with investors wanting to listen to him and Charlie Munger as they discuss everything that Berkshire has been doing over the previous year. You know, he generally speaks for about eight hours, I think, Ren. So pretty impressive for guys that are sort of approaching their 90s. But anyway, what we've done is taken a few clips and share them with you from the, the 2020 annual general meeting. So Ren, you want to kick it off? Yeah. So first one, Warren has often spoken about how he always bets on America. And so to kick it off, we're going to start with some of his opening remarks where he uh, doubled down on that message, even in the midst of a pandemic. I would like to talk to you about uh, the 
economic future of the country because I remain convinced as I have. I was convinced of this. Uh, World War II, I was convinced of it. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, 9-11, financial crisis, that, that uh, uh, nothing could basically stop America. And, and uh, uh, we faced great problems in the past. We haven't faced this exact problem. In fact, we haven't really faced anything quite resembles this problem. And, uh, but we faced tougher problems and the American miracle, the American magic has always prevailed and it will do so again. And I would, I would like to take you through a little history uh, to essentially make my case that if you were to pick one time to be born, and one place to be born. And you didn't know what your sex was going to be. You didn't know what your intelligence would be. You didn't know what your special talents or special deficiencies would be. That if you could do that one time, you would not pick 1720, you would not pick 1820, you would not pick 1920. You'd pick, to, you'd pick today and you would pick America. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So that's the first clip from Warren. Even in the midst of a pandemic, believing in the American economic miracle. Any thoughts on that one? We all know that history is no indicator of future performance. Past performance <laughs> is no indicator of future performance. And I think America is in, in a very interesting place at the moment, what with their president and COVID. So will the miracle continue? I don't know, but they're certainly not, I don't believe, as, as strong as they certain used to be. What are your thoughts, Ren? 
I think they've still got the best companies, the biggest companies, the best universities in the world and the, probably the best financial system. And I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that America will be the economic powerhouse for most of our lifetimes. Obviously, their political system's a little bit uh, <laughs> um, Hairy. not great. But, and that, you know, they've got some massive structural problems. Inequality is an issue that will be a real feature of the 2020s i think but yeah i you know i'm i'm on team warren with this one back america along the s&p 500 yeah <laughs> but look you mentioned coronavirus and coronavirus was obviously a massive part of this annual meeting aside from the fact that he was socially distanced from uh, greg abel who was the guy that was sitting next to him and there was no one in the crowd but this next clip is warren talking about how coronavirus may permanently shut up some of the businesses that Berkshire owns. This next question comes from Drew Johnson, who says that he's a longtime shareholder who's attended a couple of meetings. He says in an interview on April 17th, Charlie mentioned that some small businesses owned by Berkshire would not reopen after the pandemic eases. Can you elaborate on which businesses might be impacted? Well, even we have businesses within businesses in Marmon, don't we have 97 different businesses, for example? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and there are some weren't doing that well before. I'm, and I'm not talking about Barman specifically, but they got a couple of them and there's a couple of, and it may be that in effect, you know, what's happened in the last couple of months has accelerated the decline and of those businesses or their customers are developing different habits. I mean, people are developing different habits in retail. There's no question about that. Now that doesn't mean we're, we haven't got a bunch of good retail businesses, but there are businesses that were, that were having problems before and that have even greater problems. Now, we don't own our newspapers anymore, but we're financing uh, the enterprise, which does have them. We've actually increased our investment in the newspaper business by by selling the papers to Lee and then refinancing their debt. And the newspaper business was having plenty of problems with both circulation and advertising before the virus came along, but advertising declines every place have accelerated uh, fairly dramatically. And, you know, when the automobile industry stops, the auto dealers don't advertise as much. It's it's made certain businesses that were tough before even tougher now. And uh, there will be management of of, of, uh, at least one of the subsidiaries is suggested to us. And so there'll be... but. There'll be there'll be some changes in a few businesses, but they're they're very small businesses. Uh, our major businesses, uh, and our business of intermediate size. I can't think of anything that, that that's of significance that that uh, uh, won't won't reopen. Uh, but it won't be any fun with the the businesses where the world has really changed. You're seeing a lot of change. Uh, if you own a shopping center. Uh, uh, you've got a bunch of tenants that don't want to pay you right now. We don't, and uh, uh, you know the supply and demand for retail space may change fairly significantly. The, the supply and demand for office space may change significantly. A lot of people learned that, that they can work at home, or that uh, there's other methods uh, of conducting their business, and they might have thought that the, uh, from what they were doing in a couple of years ago. And when change happens uh, in the world, then you adjust to it. 
So obviously staying on the coronavirus and associated economic downturn track, there's obviously been a lot of comparisons to 1929, the Great Depression. Warren in this clip makes a point around the banking industry and just how different the support for banks was in the Great Depression and now. And I think that's a really, it's a key differentiator when we talk about what could happen today. So this one is Warren on the lessons from the 1929 crash. One of the things as I look back on that period, as I, and I don't think the economists generally like to give it that much of a point of importance, but, but if we'd had the FDIC 10 years earlier, we, the FDIC started on January 1st, 1934. It was part of the sweeping legislation that took place when Roosevelt came in. But if we'd had the FDIC, uh, we would have had a much, much different experience, I believe, in the in the Great Depression. People blame it on smooth, smooth holiday. And they, I mean, they, they, uh, there's all kinds of things and, and the margin requirements in 29. And all of those things entered into creating a recession. But if you have over 4,000 banks fail, that's... 4,000 local experiences where people save and save and save and put their money away. And then someday they reach for it and it's gone. And that happens, you know, in all 48 states and it happens to your neighbors and it happens to your relatives. It has to have an effect on the psyche. That's incredible. So it, uh, one very, very, very good thing that came out of the depression, in my view, is the FDIC. And uh, it would have been a somewhat different world, I'm sure. The bank failures hadn't just rolled across this country. And, and uh, with people that thought that they were savers found out that they had nothing uh, when they went there. And there was a sign that said closed. Uh, so we'll pause it there. So the FDIC, for people who aren't sure, is the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And Australia has a similar thing where basically bank deposits are insured. And, you know, what we also saw was the government are much more willing to step in and protect the banks and, you know, make sure there's not a run on the banks, which happened during the depression, and also that banks don't collapse. And so I think when we compare and contrast 29 to today, I think the solvency of our banking system is a is a big reason why we may not be in the same situation. Let's move to airlines. So airlines were obviously a big discussion point. And here in this clip, Warren is talking about the sale of their their airline businesses. For context, they owned, I think they owned 10% of the four major airlines in America, and they chose to sell them in the midst of this pandemic. And here's Warren explaining why. Sold uh, six billion or so of securities, and that's basically that isn't because we thought the stock market was going to go down or anything of the sort, or because some somebody changes their target price or they change this year's earnings forecast. Uh, I just decided that I'd made a mistake. Evaluating as an understandable mistake, it was a probability weighted decision when we bought that we were getting uh, an attractive amount for our money when investing across the airlines business. So we bought roughly 10% 
of the four largest airlines and we probably this doesn't this is not a hundred percent of what we did in April but but we probably paid seven or eight billion and somewhere between seven and eight billion to own ten percent of the four large companies in the in the airline business and we felt for that we were getting a billion dollars roughly of earnings out it wasn't weren't getting a billion dollars of dividends but we felt our share of the underlying earnings was a billion dollars and we felt that that number was more likely to go up than down over a period of time that it would be cyclical obviously but it was it was as if we bought the whole company but we bought it through the new york stock exchange and and we can only effectively buy 10 percent roughly of the four and we treated mentally exactly as if we were buying a business and it turned out I was wrong about that business because of something that was not in any way the fault of four excellent CEOs. I mean, they, 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 believe me, no joy being a CEO of an airline, but the companies we bought were well-managed, did a lot of things right. It's a very, very, very difficult business because you're dealing with millions of people every day. And if something goes wrong for 1% of them, they are very unhappy. So I, I don't envy anybody the job of being CEO of an airline, but I particularly don't enjoy being in a period like this where essentially nobody and people have been told basically not to fly. I've been told not to fly for a while. I'm, on a, I'm looking forward to flying. I may not fly commercial, but that's another question. I think it's definitely an example of thesis changing. So as he sort of said in the clip there, their thesis was, I'm not sure if it was specifically in that clip or just generally, he talks about their thesis was they weren't sure which airline was going to win, but they were pretty confident that over time, the amount of air travel would increase. And so they just wanted to be exposed to that trend. And that's why they bought as much as they could of the four major airlines. And then the thesis changed. The idea that air travel would increase over time is now fundamentally being challenged in the short term by coronavirus and in the long term potentially by you know changing working patterns and stuff like that so yeah definitely a thesis change i think all right so next one is on a similar vein and i think it includes a discussion of airlines but it's around why warren refuses to hold underperforming businesses and how that is nothing new it's been a long-term policy of berkshire to not sell or close any ongoing subsidiaries as long as their business prospects weren't a money hole over the last year he points out the the sale of berkshire hathaway media uh, and then Charlie's comments from that interview saying that several small Berkshire subsidiaries will not be opening when the coronavirus lockdown is lifted. So should shareholders assume that Berkshire has now changed its long-term policy in regards to keeping underperforming subsidiaries no, around? I think, I think that policy was spelled out for maybe 30 years or so in an addendum to the, in the annual report that we have said that, that if a company or if an operation, uh, we think it... It's, it, it, it's prospects uh, are that it will continually uh, lose money in the future, but uh, we will certainly uh, we'll try to sell it to somebody else. Uh, but one way or another, we will we will not continue to to hold it. And that that is not a new policy, and it's not been changed. You can say, in effect, we did that with the airline industry to some extent. Uh, if we owned all of an airline now, it would be a tough decision to decide 
whether to sustain billions of dollars in operating losses when you know, A, you don't know how long it's going to happen or occur. And secondly, you know that it's very likely that there'll be too many planes around. Uh, and we know what happens in airline pricing when load factors go down and, 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 and uh, there's an oversupply of airline seats. So, you know, we didn't have to make that decision in terms of our own operation on it, but, but we did make a decision that, that that's a very tough management decision to make. And the government, of course, is, is um, well, they've had the first wave of financing for the airlines, but to the airlines credit, they have very aggressively uh, raised money. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how what a good job they've done of that. And and in the case of, uh, I think in the case of three of them, uh, no, two of them, but there may be more coming. They've raised equity money too. I mean, they are they are saying that the the debt holders and investors, you know, you got to put more money into this business. Uh, if we're going to be able to continue, and the government's done it, and uh, and private sources have done it, and it's going to, it's, it's exactly the right thing for the managements to be doing. But you know whether it's whether it makes sense, we'll find out for the investors. Warren, not not having a bar of that question, not saying that their policies have changed at all. I find the the airline discussion interesting. I definitely think that was aside from coronavirus, that was the main talking point out of this meeting. We did a video a couple of weeks back on YouTube around the capital raisings that we were seeing in Australia and how some of them were at low prices and how some of them were interesting. I imagine an airline trying to raise capital in a coronavirus environment would have been at a steep discount to their current price. So I have got three clips to go and we'll try and punch through them very quickly. So the next one is obviously the US government is printing money like never before. And, you know, the government is selling a lot of bonds, creating a lot of debt. And uh, when, when you see a number like $21 trillion in debt, you often think, you know, can the government pay this back? Are they going to default? And so Warren was asked that question and here's his thoughts on this just massive amount of debt that the U.S. government is incurring currently. Given the unprecedented time of the economy and the debt level, could there be any risks and consequences of the U.S. government defaulting on its bonds? No. If you print bonds in your own currency, what happens to the currency is going to be a question because you don't default. Uh, and uh, the United States has been smart enough been the, and people have trusted us enough to issue its debt in our, its own currency. And Argentina is now having a problem because the, the debt isn't in the, their own currency. And, and lots of countries have had that problem and lots of company, countries will have that problem in the future. It is a, very painful to owe money in somebody else's currency. But listen, if I could issue a currency, Buffett bucks, and I had a printing press, I could borrow money, and I could borrow money on that. I would never default. <laughs> uh, so what you end up getting in terms of purchasing power can be in doubt. But in terms of the U.S. government, I when Standard & Poor's downgraded the United States government, I think it was Standard & Poor's some years back, 
that to me did not make sense. I mean, in the end, how you can regard any corporation as stronger than the a person who can print the money to pay you, uh, I just don't understand. So there you go. Not worried at all about the U.S. debt. And Buffett bucks, yeah, I, I would invest. That's the the next the next crypto after Bitcoin. The second last clip, obviously Warren and Charlie are getting closer to retirement and there's a lot of talk about breaking up Berkshire, taking the businesses and splitting them apart. And so he was asked that question about what should happen with Berkshire and should it be broken up after they're no longer running the company? There's already speculation of a post-Buffett breakup of Berkshire and given the sway carried by modern activists, the speculation should be taken seriously. Many long-term owners see the folly in this view. A $25 billion ancillary earnings stream provides a lot of flexibility when investing insurance float. On our and your estate's behalf, could you more forcefully make the case of maintaining Berkshire's current architecture? If you don't, that responsibility will fall on an unknown set of shoulders with far less credibility. Well, if you were to to sell Berkshire's various subsidiaries, you would incur a very significant amount of tax at the corporate level before anything was distributed to the shareholders. Uh, You can spin off a given one or something of the sort, but the ability to break up a diverse company without tax implications, there was there was something called the general utilities doctrine that prevailed in various ways up until 1986. And a lot of people seem to comment based on the fact that that didn't happen in 1986. And there's imaginative ways where people try to avoid taxes and can do it in some cases. On certain types of transactions, if you were to break up Berkshire, that would be one factor. But the interaction of being able to move capital around in terms of being able to do things in insurance that we couldn't do unless there were the backup earnings and capital employed in the other entities. There's there's enormous advantages in capital deployment. So there you go. Unlikely to see post-Buffett breakup of Berkshire. So for all you Berkshire shareholders, which includes both of us, I believe, they'll likely stick together. All right, now, last clip. Obviously, it's a scary time to buy stocks and Buffett is sitting on $130 billion in cash and not buying stocks. So someone pretty fairly asked him the question, why are you saying buy stocks if you're not buying? So in the final clip of this episode, we're going to hear Warren answer that. Warren, why are you recommending listeners to buy now, yet you're not comfortable buying now as evidenced by your huge cash position? Well, A, as I explained, the position isn't that huge when I look at worst case possibilities. I would say that there are things that I think are quite improbable, and I hope they don't happen, but that doesn't mean they won't happen. I mean, for example, in our insurance business, we could have the world's or the country's uh, number one hurricane that it's ever had, but that doesn't preclude the fact we could have the biggest earthquake a month later. So we 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 are not we don't prepare ourselves for a single problem. We prepare ourselves for problems that that sometimes create their own momentum. I mean, two thousand eight and nine, you didn't see all the problems the first day when. Uh, Really, what really kicked it off was when the the Freddie and Fannie, the GSEs, went into conservatorship in early September, and and then when uh, money market funds broke the buck. I mean, uh, there there are 
there are things that trip other things, and and we take a very much a worst case uh, scenario into mind that probably is a considerably worse case than than most people do. So uh, I don't look at it as as huge, and I'm not I'm not recommending that people buy stocks today or tomorrow or next week or next month. I think it all depends on your circumstances, but you shouldn't buy stocks unless you expect, in my view. You, you expect to hold them for a very extended period and you are prepared financially and psychologically to hold them the same way you would hold a farm and never look at a quote and never uh, never pay it. You don't need to pay attention to them. I mean, the main thing to do, and you're not going to pick the bottom and you're not going to, nobody else can pick it for you or anything of the sort. You've got to be prepared to, when you buy a stock to have it go down 50% or more and be comfortable with it as long as you're comfortable with the holding. And I pointed out, uh, I think a year, maybe two years ago on the annual report, uh, well, just the one before this most recent one, I, I pointed out that there have been three times in Berkshire's history when the price of Berkshire stock went down 50%, three different times. Now, if you owed it on borrowed money, you, would, you, know, you could have been cleaned out. Uh, there wasn't anything wrong with Berkshire. Uh, when those three times occurred, but if you're going to if you're going to look at the price of the stock uh, and think that you have to act because it's doing this or that, or somebody else tells you, well, I mean, you know, how can you stay with that when something else is going up or anything? You really you got to be in the right psychological position. And frankly, some people are not really careful. Some people are more subject to fear than than others. It's it. it, it it's like, it's like the virus, it strikes. Uh, some people with uh, much greater ferocity than, than, than others. And, and fear, is, uh, fear is something I really never felt financially, but, but uh, I don't think Charlie's felt it either. But, uh, some people can handle it psychologically. If you can't handle it psychologically, then you really shouldn't own stocks because you're going to buy and sell them at the wrong time. And you should not count on somebody else telling you this, you should, you should do something you understand yourself. If you don't understand it yourself, you're gonna be affected by the next person you talk to. And uh, uh, so you should you should be in a position to hold, and I don't know whether today is a, a great day to buy stocks. I know it will work out over 20 or 30 years. I don't know whether it'll work out over two years at all. I have no idea whether you'll be ahead or behind on a stock you buy on Monday morning. To have that level of conviction throughout his life, I think he knows what he's doing. That's why he's the greatest investor of all time. So we'll leave it there, Ren. Always good to chat stocks and back next week. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. 